As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context in just 15 minutes. Look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. On Wall Street on this equity market, Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi. Liz, wonderful to see you, and thanks for being with us. I think the question of the moment, can this market rally broaden out? Can it, Liz? Well, it always can. And, you know, we're obviously in the beginning of a very important week, and each Fed meeting continues to be the most important one since the last one. But what we've seen over the last week or so is that you are getting some strength from some of those sort of regular stocks. We've got now more than 50% of the S&P back above the 200-day moving average, which is a good sign. And you're getting participation from sectors that hadn't participated in this rally since probably last year at some point. So, It's important to have those signals. It's important to see smaller cap stocks participating because that's what you would expect if we were in the early expansion phase or if we were in a newer bull market. The big question now, and we continue to see this throughout this entire cycle as we get to these decision points, the next level on the S&P that everybody's watching is 4325, which was the intraday high last August. Can we make it to that point and beyond? And that continues to be the big question. I don't know that we're going to see this strength persist through what continues to be a hiking cycle and pressure on valuations. Liz, SoFi is a different remit. What are you seeing from SoFi clients, the customers, the people that make SoFi go? What are you seeing in terms of their relative gloom or optimism? I get mixed signals. Well, it's interesting. We tend to skew younger, especially on the investor side. So you end what, up seeing under a lot 60, of under sixty, under sixty-five, under sixty-five, <laughs> under sixty. Nice, Generally Liz. Under 40. Keep it up, Liz. <laughs> Who booked her? The the, the intern so, over here booked her. What the hell is that about? Keep it yo, going, Liz. Stop. So what you generally see from a younger investor is still interest in headline-making names. You want titans of tech and sort of the disruptors. So there is still a lot of interest and appetite for those names. One of the things that has been surprising to me that even after last year's tough market, we did a lot of surveys of our investors and you hear things like, 
we're still planning to invest just as much, if not more, despite the bear market. So it's encouraging that you still even have on the younger end of the spectrum, people have appetite for long-term investing and understanding maybe more so than we expected that bear markets do happen, that this is part of long-term investing. I think in the short term, the headlines do drive a lot of that sentiment. And obviously something that we've seen over the last week with every investor, not just the SoFi investor, is that once the market starts to move in a different direction and you've got some optimism that starts to show up in the tape, suddenly everybody's sentiment changes. And that's a good thing, I think, for the appetite and the buying opportunities that people might see. However, it does sometimes skew the risk that's still lurking out there, especially in a rising rate environment. So multiple expansion is not something that I think many investors have understood from both sides of the coin in the last couple of years, because multiple expansion has been supported largely by monetary policy, liquidity. And now we're in this environment where a lot of that is coming out of the system. I don't think multiple expansion is warranted right now. And it's something that I think starts to sort of trick uh, a more un unexperienced investor. Is big tech no longer interest rate sensitive? Uh, I think it's still interest rate sensitive if you're looking at it just in a growth bucket, right? But that's not necessarily how investors have treated big tech. I think they've actually removed those big names from the growth bucket and they're thinking of them in a different way, partially thinking of them in a defensive manner. And this is the part of the economy that's going to continue to lead and going to be strong for us for the rest of seemingly our lives. But then there's also this other piece of it that people have gotten very enthusiastic about with the AI theme. The thing about a theme is that you usually invest in a theme for a two to five year period. There's been so much enthusiasm about AI in the last few months. I just don't think people are going to get the gratification of that enthusiasm as quickly as they want to. So if you're thinking about stocks from a growth and value perspective, big tech is probably acting a bit different than what we would expect from a growthy name in this environment. That hasn't necessarily changed, and it's something that I think has served investors well over most of this cycle. There hasn't really been a big reason to believe otherwise yet. Liz Young of SoFi. Liz, you're also always welcome back. Thank you, Liz, Thank you. for catching up. Thank you, as always. We are thrilled to have Michael Mayo with us, Managing Director at Wells Fargo uh, here. Off of 20 years, I will say, Mike Mayo, of covering banks, of covering UBS, of covering uh, Credit Suisse and the rest. So let's talk about this historic day. We go SBC, UBS, UBS takes out Credit Suisse, and here we are. Was this because of greed? Was this because of the absolute demand to create revenue, we don't care what the quality of the revenue is going to be. We just need to get new revenue. Is that what happened to your Credit Suisse? Well, I didn't officially cover Credit Suisse, but I can comment on the European banks, which has sure. woefully lagged the U.S. banks. And some of this is um, structural. After the global financial <clears throat> crisis, they did not recapitalize at the pace of the U.S. banks. And some of this is simply cultural, which I lived through. And it was sometimes growth at any price, growth at, you know, extraordinary risk. And so I'd say there are some culturally flawed mm -hmm. European organizations, several with, that I worked at, but it's played out through the numbers. And it's relevant to my analysis of the U.S. banks now because Goliath is winning and the Goliaths are the largest U.S. banks. Is Mr. Armadi 
in his red line is going to be a change agent. And can Mr. Diamond, with a completely separate issue, this Epstein scandal, be a change agent towards a more discerning choice of clients? Well, you know, know your customer is banking 101. And I don't deal directly with, say, the investment banking clients, but I have a compliance exam several times a year, as does everybody on Wall Street in the United States. But there might be more restrictions on which clients you're allowed to take. So there's going to be an extra check. And so it's not all clients come to us. It's going to be a smaller subset of what you deal with today. You said Goliaths are winning. Are the smaller banks losing? Just putting aside Europe. Yes. Uh, we uh, conducted an analysis. We did a kitchen sink analysis where we had four haircuts. One haircut was deposits leave by another 8% uh, in the industry. Another haircut would be provisions equal to a recession level. Extra expenses for new regulation. And we have the, the Fed funds rate go all the way down to 2.75%, which would hurt the, the net interest margins. Regional banks get hurt by 25% to earnings. Large banks get hurt by maybe 5%, 10%. So Goliath is winning, and Goliath is winning even more. But I wanted to make one clear statement today, and that relates to actually the regional banks are making some comeback. And uh, so the, the statement is that the detour... <laughs> <laughs> for so not, cheesy. For, carry on. Okay, well, you know I'm cheesy. I have okay. my props. But <laughs> carry the, on. the detour for not owning bank stocks uh, is over. So for it's, those of you, it's like in construction. For those of you on the radio, he's got, give me that road sign over there. Bring in a stop sign next time. <laughs> Mike, stop. End, end detour is what he's saying. On radio, it's, a, it's one of those orange, it's one of those orange signs. <laughs> no. It's like the real sign. What you do, steal, oh boy. steal this off the construction sign for the Bloomberg? How's your pop? head, Tom? No, he, he, st he stole this sign off the, the construction right. side of the Bloomberg pothole <laughs> at Lexington and 58. All right. The prop aside, I am wondering, why now? Because you talk about this potential 25% hit to their profits. This is significant. You're basically just saying it's priced in. We've priced in all of that and then some. So it's time to hoover up some of these uh, smaller stocks that have gotten beaten up. Well, when I say I, the larger regional banks, look, they're not going to zero. Uh, you had your failures from idiosyncratic events. They're not raising equity, at least the largest banks. Look, you've had three banks that were in the S&P 500 at the start of the year that failed. Okay, that's, that's done. All right, so this idea, this almost hysteria as it relates to the largest banks is over. And it's been over for the last four weeks. I mean, these... The banks have gone up by over 10% during that time. They've outperformed the S&P 500, but they've no way caught up to the broader S&P 500. So you're saying what could have legs in the market? You know, bank stocks, the larger bank stocks certainly could, like a, a U.S. Bancorp, which has been pummeled. And it's one of the highest quality banks out there. Although, in fairness, they haven't gotten pummeled as much as some of the others. And I do wonder, I mean, I get your point with those particular ones. Do the largest mid-sized banks hold up even if you get additional failures on the lower end at a time when the emergency lending facility at the Fed is still being used at a pretty significant rate? Well, I'm going to avoid your question just for one moment. There was big <laughs> news last week, and I think the, the one outlook that really picked up on it was Bloomberg. There was over $10 billion of debt issued 
by the large regional banks. It was the first issuance since the failure of Silicon Valley. It was four to five times oversubscribed, and the spreads came in pretty well. So for those banks, yes, below that level, below the level of the top 10 banks, it's still to be determined how much wherewithal mm-hmm. they'll have to access the debt markets. That hasn't happened yet. So you're right, there is a divide. <clears throat> Goliaths are winning, the next level down is tap the markets. Below that, it waits right. to be seen. And once you get past this acute stage, you still have a recession with commercial real estate. And most of the commercial real estate loans are for banks below the top 10. Uh, move the decimal point, Mike Mayo. Citigroup, after a 10 to 1 reverse split way back, $4.83, which is basically unchanged from 2009. I detect some Jane Frazier moves. They seem to be consolidating and simplifying the process. What is the new, what does the next Citigroup look like? The next Citigroup looks a lot like the old Citigroup before the merger in 1998. So this is Citigroup's this, silver anniversary. This is gospel, folks. This goes back to when Mayo was canned at Credit Suisse. Continue. Um, and <clears throat> so this is Citigroup's silver anniversary. It's their 25-year anniversary, and it's certainly not a cause for celebration. The stock's down over three-fourths at a time when the stock market's more than tripled. They failed on almost every measure. What is she doing different? What is the courage she's doing right now to get them back to John Reed? Well, she's simplifying. You know, the old adage, Tom, is that um, global bank, uh, wholesale banking is global, consumer banking is local. And that even predates this merger. This goes back to, to Walter Riston. And we're talking about a 50-year failed strategy where Citigroup thought they could go ahead and, you know, you know, have a customer in Hong Kong whose kids go to boarding school in London and they vacation in Aspen. Yeah. And we're going to serve yeah, that. Like super Lisa's f- life. What's that? No. <clears throat> it's like Lisa's life. Yeah. Lisa, get one more uh, question Lisa's in life. So, so anyway, that's failed. She's yeah. reversing that, going global with wholesale and getting rid of the non-U.S. consumer. You dodged one thing. So I'm going to come back to it just real quickly. If smaller banks start to fail again, are all bets off with the largest regionals? The smallest banks are not systemic. There's over 4,500 banks. You're going to have bank failures. That's a rule of banking. But it's not going to be any bank in the S&P right. 500, in my view, over the you know many immediate time frames. So that phase is over. It's the you know this idea of you know Tom, you can hold it up. The idea. Please of don't hit your head again. The, the detour. <laughs> Away from banks has ended. Right. If we can. Uh, okay, we got 20 <laughs> seconds. ND tour. ND tour. What's your single bus buy right now? You know, I'm going with JP Morgan and Citigroup as my top two picks, but I'm also adding in there right now US Bancorp, which has been relatively pummeled given the quality. Should have hit him on the head. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Bale, thank you so much. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Robert Tipp is the Chief Investment Strategist for uh, PGM. Robert, just simply right now, what are you doing to adjust for a mid-year adjustment? Everyone in equity land is adjusting like crazy, particularly bears or near bears. How does fixed income adjust? Right. Well, I think to, uh, to Lisa's point there, you know, are people ignoring some of the data and some of the market messages? Uh, in terms of the, the equity market, people have been very zeroed in on the narrowness of the rally with tech stocks. But, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, on a country basis, Europe, Japan have been doing really well from even before the U.S. So there's a, a breadth of growth out there. And the reason I mention that is because that is the threat uh, to the fixed income market is that uh, the economy is is doing reasonably well. Uh, but if you wondered what a price wage spiral looks like, I think you're looking at it. You know, it's been some time here where uh, wages have uh, budged. They've, they've moved up. Uh, they're not surging, but some of the settlements that you see around the world uh, coming out of uh, negotiations are high. And inflation, you know, on a core basis is running around, I mean, the better part of 5%. And there's not a lot of signs of deceleration there. So, Maybe it's not a wage price spiral, but it's certainly a wage price uh, race. Uh, you know, it's a horse race out there. And that is what could uh, cause it to be a very long time for inflation to come down. Bring us back to that uh, comment of the Fed being at these levels for a very long time and not putting a little bit of upward pressure on, on the middle of the yield curve. So there's a lot to unpack there. And let's just start and, and sort of elaborate on your point about a wage price spiral basically being here or a wage price escalation, whatever you want to call it, a skip, jump, yeah. pause, whatever. I am curious about what data you're looking at to give you that assertion, give, considering the fact that Fed officials have said that their concerns about a wage price uh, spiral have been eased. We've heard a number of others saying the same kind of thing, especially with the deceleration recently. Yeah, I mean, you could make that comment from average hourly earnings. And uh, if you really uh, wanted to be optimistic, you could even make it from the, the ECI, Employment Cost Index. Uh, but those sample sizes, uh, especially on, on payrolls, I mean, they're not particularly large. They're subject to revision. And the ECI running at about you know 1.1% or so uh, on a trailing, I think it's around 5% actually. I mean, there's not been a lot of deceleration there. And... Um, you know, when you look at what's going on in, in the, the labor market, uh, there's been a huge growth in, in the labor force and the uh, hiring is going on at a, at a multiple of the pace needed to stay at full employment. So, uh, you know, if you want to drill down and you want to be optimistic, you can find things that say, oh, yeah, no, this is going to be OK. But that's usually the way it ends up going the way you don't want it to go for longer than you expect. And that, that's what I think. Uh, market pricing is missing here. The irony is that J.P. Morgan put out a paper saying that if bonds are right, stocks have to sell off by 20 percent. And bonds usually are right. But this time, Robert, are you basically saying that stocks are right, that bonds need to catch up to where stocks are, and that will necessitate some sort of response from the Fed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm saying the markets actually, to me, markets look right. 
when you look at these uh, large cap companies in the stock market, uh, earnings growth is not fantastic, but these companies have seen a lot of action over the last few years, just like everybody else, and they've come through pretty well. So they're showing a resilience uh, to calamity, uh, granted with a lot of fiscal stimulus, uh, but they've shown a lot of restraint on the way back. So they have a lot of cyclical resilience on the way down. Uh, and they've shown a fair amount of ability, not in real terms, really, but to hold up and keep their earnings uh, in an inflationary environment. But what does and that so mean? So I think that's, uh, you know, maybe what's supporting this market. But overall, it looks like a good investment environment out there uh, for long term fixed income. Uh, but there are some, you know, some things to avoid, like pricing on parts of the yield curve in particular. So how much could that mid-year yield curve go up? In other words, are you looking at a pretty substantial rise in yield price lower? I think you're looking at a slow burn. Uh, Tom asked the question, you know, we're going to be here, we're going to be at 3%. Your market pricing, uh, you know, a year or so out has over 100 basis points of rate cuts priced in. So the market is banking on that, that turnaround. And so I think you could see a very slow increase in the range for 10s. You could see them push up towards 4%. And if it turns out you need these 5% plus Fed funds rates for a very long time, or in the case of Europe, pushing 4% for a long time, right. et cetera, uh, around much of the world, you're going to see, uh, you can very easily see over the next one, two, five years, you know, a 50, 100 basis point, uh, right. slow burn, move higher in rates. Robert, the I, curve. I find interesting here, Robert, Tip, the idea of an ambiguity between rates higher, rates lower, obviously, lower. Obviously, somebody has their own belief in that. Is the solution for mere mortals to barbell or to ladder out maturities? Is uh, Kathy Jones, a Schwab, mentioned to us last week? Right. Well, I'm a mere mortal portfolio manager. And uh, yes, uh, barbelling is an approach and um, uh, being tactical on the curve. And the reason I, I mention uh, mortals as portfolio manager is, you know, if you're uh, an individual and you're buying your bonds on a buy and hold basis, that may not be that effective. I mean, there are opportunities in terms of floating rates, structured product, very high quality that's going to key off of the funds rate you know, where the yields are pushing 7%, and there are opportunities in the longer-term credit markets, again, where the yields are much higher than cash. Um, number one. Number two, the pricing's been extremely dynamic. So before SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, debacle, there was pricing in the very front end of the curve, the first right. handful of months, that was extremely attractive, and you wanted to have duration there, and then post-SVB that you may want to be short. So tactically, I've you know, what we've seen over the years is, is cycles for the market right. have been compressed into weeks and days. And so that may not lend itself well to kind of a static uh, barbelling approach. Robert, very quickly here, we're out of time, but this is too important. Gazillions are going into money market funds. All my radar's up. What's the mistake right now of piling into 5% plus money market funds? Right. Uh, you know, my... Uh, expectation would be, you know, there, there are two, two possible problems there. The one is the economy is much weaker than expected. Rates drop and they end up losing their income and they haven't locked it in for what their real time frame is, which is saving for the long term. Uh, the other thing is there's a lot of alpha in the market further out the yield curve and in the credit sectors. And they're obviously not going to be availing themselves of that. Robert Tip of Jim on a cash trap <clears throat> at the end of that conversation. 
This is going to get a lot more complex, and I think we'll learn day by day here on far more serious charges, perhaps, than what we see in New York. John Lieber is expert on this. He's United States Managing Director at Eurasia Group and joins us for a Monday brief on a t- an historic Tuesday that we will see tomorrow. Bloomberg, and particularly balance of power, will have full coverage of this. John, thank you so much for joining. What's this judge going to do tomorrow? She's a Trump appointee. You know her. You can brief us on who she is. What will she do? You know, this indictment is, is historic, as you, as you mentioned, and we've never seen anything like this. And there's a whole host of considerations when you're looking at a, uh, a, a high-ranking political official like President Trump that just aren't going to be in play with other people. The publicity, there's a major security concern. But, you know, I, I think we saw his indictment in New York. It, it, in many ways, it was it was pretty normal. You know, the, the Secret Service walked him in. They had an arrangement. So t- Tuesday, to me, isn't the, isn't the really important date. It's what happens over the coming months and the kinds of decisions that she'll be making to either uh, admit evidence or exclude evidence and how she instructs a jury if one ever comes together. There's a lot of really complicated legal questions here. Uh, And the the key question to me coming forward forward is, how do you find an unbiased jury for the most famous man probably in the world? Everybody in America has thoughts on this guy, and probably most people have exposure to this case. There's going to be a lot of tough questions for this judge going forward. Well, this is Eileen Cannon of of Miami in the federal court. Are those decisions going to begin to be made tomorrow? They'll be made. I mean, this trial is going to take probably months to unfold. The government said they want a speedy trial. And Trump's M.O. in the past has been to drag out these legal proceedings as long as he possibly can with procedural motions. I can't say if we think that she has a more uh, favorable view of Trump's procedural motions or not. There's just a lot we don't know. In the past, she has made some rulings that are favorable to the former president. But, you know, at this point, I would give her the benefit of the doubt. But her uh, ability to fairly conduct a trial uh, and fairly indict the president is going to be a key thing to watch going forward. John just read uh, the poll numbers in terms of Republican candidates, uh, Republican voters who are likely to continue to keep their support with the former president. Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised by either how much of the proportion of people are not going to change their opinion versus those that are actually uh, considering one way or another what this does? Sadly, no. I mean, Donald Trump's been uh, survived just, uh, you know, being uh, political flamethrowers that would have just absolutely scorched any other politician over the last uh, eight years. And, you know, you look at this relative to the Access Hollywood tape or the fact that he just lost a civil suit for sexual assault. I mean, there are some really serious things this guy has, has done that have have not touched his approval ratings at all among a really hardcore base of the Republican Party. And now he has the opportunity to say that the president of the United States is bringing a political prosecution against him. And there's people like his rival, Vivek Ramaswamy, and other Republicans who are out defending him. So I'm not remote, remotely surprised that he's able to spin this to his benefit. If I'm one of the Republican challengers that's hoping to get into the news cycle here, I'm I'm hating this because this just gives Trump the opportunity to be the number one storyline. All the questions you're going to be asked are about President Trump. And this election is fundamentally going to be about his role in the party and his role uh, in the country, because he's going to be so dominant going forward. From an international perspective, I think about some of the allies looking at the U.S. right now and the fact that this is going on, which is unprecedented, and the fact that there is such fiery rhetoric and potential threat surrounding uh, tomorrow's court hearing. What does that do to the U.S. relationship with its international friends? 
Yeah, I think the big challenge to the U.S. right now is that it's it, it looks a lot like some other countries that we criticized quite a bit in the past. And I think that the uh, the great things the U.S. has going for it are the strength of, of its institutions, and that includes both the courts and law enforcement. So the fact that you have half the country believing that law enforcement has been fundamentally corrupted and delegitimized, and that message is going to get out and resonate around the world, it really undermines faith and belief in U.S. institutions, not just domestically but globally and that you know that's that's a, a bit of a problem when you look around the globe at countries like uh, El Salvador or other places where you might start to see democratic backsliding and the US doesn't really have the ability to step in and criticize anymore and in some cases it's not even trying John I wonder if it's something more specific as well if you're a US partner right now in the west a european country the UK for instance are you questioning how you share intelligence with the US if this is what happens I don't think there's a belief. I mean, you know, Joe Biden, yes, he had some boxes in his garage. The, the, the National Archives found out about it. They came to take him back. I think that Trump is a is a bit of a unique figure here. However, the U.S. does have a broader problem with intelligence leaks. I mean, you've got this uh, this National Guard, very young guy who was leaking these documents that is now doing quite a bit of damage. So when it comes to the national security, the actual documented damage to national security that we know about so far, the Trump documents, while his actions were quite bad, uh, don't come close to some of these other cases. And I don't know if this case in particular uh, pushes the allies uh, away from the U.S. over that issue. Interesting. John, thanks for your perspective. Appreciate it. John, leave you there of Eurasia Group. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, we turn to traditional surveillance coverage. Ian Shepardson joins us, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And one of the great things about the Shepardson purview is we have to watch China. He and Duncan Wrigley have been out front on this for years. You said years ago, Ian, we have to pay attention to China. You people look at it every day. What's the consensus get wrong right now about China? Well, there's a couple of things, a couple of stories that I think are really important. The first is that the rebound, the China rebound that everyone was so excited about six months ago has been a lot less impressive than we all hoped. And that is generating the second point, which is disinflation, deflation pressure coming from China. China's uh, PPI inflation is negative. It's probably going to go more negative. Excess productive capacity and just not enough demand is pushing down uh, China's PPI. And that's going to push into global 
our manufactured goods prices. China is kind of the price setter for global manufactured goods, and that means downward pressure pretty much everywhere over the whole of the next year. They're going to export disinflation. I mentioned this, folks. Ambrose Evans Pritchard with a clinic on this in the Telegraph the other day. How much is a percentage amount you would calculate that Chinese the impulse of Chinese disinflation will bring down U.S. inflation. Well, it's, uh, we're only talking about goods, of course. And remember that the U.S. core CPI is mostly right. a service price index. But at the margin, downward pressure on goods prices, which, which I think could be heading to a zero inflation rate over the course of the next year in the U.S., and currently about 4 or 5%. So really quite substantial. Now, that's not all due to China. It's also due to some recompression of U.S. domestic margins. But the China impulse, I think, is going to be very visible and very helpful to the cause of lower U.S. inflation and Europe, too, uh, over the course of the next year and starting pretty much right now. Speaking to this inflation debate with China, there has also been a shift away from China being the factor of the world and an increase in lobbying power and, frankly, labor's power in general in the U.S., in Europe, as a lot of the manufacturing gets nearshored or onshored. So how much do you see something of a wage spiral continuing regardless of what happens with China, regardless of what happens with headline GDP growth. Yeah, I, you know, I think wage pressure is diminishing, but it's still elevated. I mean, we're not seeing the sort of numbers that we're seeing in, in 2021 when U.S. wage growth was 6%. It's more like four now, depends exactly which measure you choose. Uh, but it certainly uh, had um, had some momentum that I think has lasted longer than a lot of people, me included, expected. But, but I do also think that we're now on the verge of a meaningful weakening in the labor market, including in manufacturing. And yeah, I know that the reason shoring is, is very much a, a thing. You can see that very clearly in the U.S. construction data in manufacturing. But in the labor market, it's starting to struggle somewhat. You know, the ISM manufacturing survey, the benchmark national survey is very weak and it's been weak for some time now. And that labor market softening, I think, is going to take some of the edge off the wage growth over the next half a year. What are you looking at to highlight this softening that so many people thought would already have happened, mm. but hasn't yet? Well, it's everywhere except the payroll numbers, isn't it? I mean, if we look at the, the small business survey from the NFIB, that's at recession levels. The official index of leading indicators, deep recession levels, ISM manufacturing, recession levels, payrolls, 250 a month, private payrolls. I mean, so there's a real disconnect. Um, so that can solve itself in, in two ways. Either all the surveys can rebound magically or payrolls can weaken, which I think is much more likely. You know, the Fed's raised rates by 500 basis points in 15 months. And normally that would be more than enough to push the economy into recession. I don't think this time will be any different. We just got to wait a bit longer. This time will be different. There was a Newcastle that was mid, you know, mid-level Premier League and they had arguably the best year of anyone, maybe except Man City. And your Newcastle Union, I mean, they just surprise, surprise, surprise. What's the Newcastle out there that will keep this economy going? Well, you know, the consumer is always a bit that, that has the potential because there's still a lot of savings left that were built up during the pandemic. The Biden stimulus yeah. is still benefiting Some a of large body yeah. of America. Yeah, but there's <clears> about two thirds of that excess savings has been spent now. And what's left seems to be mostly in the hands of higher income households who probably are less likely to spend it. But it's an unknown because we can't look back at any previous experience and say, you know, the last time this happened, the outcome was X because there is no last time. But the unknown, the, the known is that everybody got the recession call wrong except a very select few.
Can you time a recession right now? Or is this so original you just give up? Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, plus, of course, you've got to remember that the GDP numbers get revised forever. So in real time, it's very hard to tell, which is why the Fed puts so much emphasis on the labor market. You know, they're very keen on, on the SARM rule. Unemployment rises by half a point. You've got a recession, whether GDP says so or not. Uh, we're not there yet, but my guess is that by the end of the summer, we'll either be there or we'll be very close. Do you think that if the Fed does pause and doesn't raise a re- again, we could get inflation down close to three, two and a half percent by the end of this year. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the headline rate's going to drop very sharply anyway in the next couple of months just because of base effects from last year. But the core also, I think, is, is likely to soften. I think we're seeing, going to see real margin compression uh, across retailing where we had huge expansions during the pandemic. And I do think that the labor market is going to weaken as well. So I'm very hopeful that the Fed has done enough. And I think if they keep hiking, they'll have done more than enough. And the recession will end up being deeper and longer than it needs to be. If we do get a headline CPI print tomorrow that is above expectations... How do they justify and say that they are still data dependent? Or is that a misnomer? Are they not really? They're just sort of feeling their way and using that as an excuse. Oh, they're definitely feeling their way. I mean, that you know, they've been very clear that uh, that there's no grand plan here. It's a case to see what happens in the numbers. So, But I think that tomorrow's pause has been fairly well flagged. This is a Fed that doesn't like to surprise. So I'd be quite surprised. Unless the CPI numbers are just absolutely wild, they're not hiking this week. But isn't it kind of silly? Isn't it silly that they're not just basically saying we need to really assess what we've done. So we're going to just take a breather. And at a certain point, we'll signal when we're done. Not this hawkish pause, skip, whatever kind of confusion that leaves them with less credibility from a lot of people in the markets who say, don't be too cute. We don't know either. We just want to see what's going on. Yeah, no one knows for sure, because we're in a completely unprecedented environment here. So having done 500 basis points, faster than any hiking cycle since Paul Volcker in the early 80s, why not take the summer off? Skip, skip June, skip July, go to the beach, okay, come back well, up the Labor Day. Let's stop Amen. there. I mean, you, you beautifully frame that back to Volcker. Some would say they massively screwed up. Others would say they just got us back. Dudley would say they just got us back to where we ought to be. But what's the, what's the downside if they pause, pause, pause? I don't see much. because Exactly. There's, there's, not, there's no sort of residual inflation pressure waiting to leap back if they stop raising rates for three months. But by sitting back for three months, we get a lot more data through the summer. We have a much clearer idea in early fall of the <clears> lagged <throat> impact of their cumulative actions, which is what they keep writing about in the statement, but don't seem to be taking very seriously with this reliance on the short-term data. So I, this, this is, is a strong case. Lisa, I had the clearest memory of being at AEA in January of, I'll say, 09 or 10, and I, I'm going to give credit to Olivier Blanchard. Worthies were up on stage, and Blanchard had a chart up <clears throat> saying there's there's no pain to just waiting for more information. And that that's where mm. I am on this pause, pause, you know, pause, pause, oh. pause, 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 whatever. I, mean, you know, I just I think he's dead on. I, I agree in theory. <clears throat> the problem is, is that a lot of these Fed officials and a lot of economists are conditioned by getting it so wrong back in 2020 and 2021 and not moving quickly enough yeah. and not trying to counter some of that stimulus. How much is that the driving factor that's going to perhaps push people in the opposite direction this time around? Yeah, I mean, it skewed the decision, shall we say. I think that's probably the right way to think about it. That decisions which in, in previous Feds might have been much closer, they've gone on the hawkish side. And yeah, you know, transitory was a, a complete fiasco, a debacle. It was politically damaging to the Fed. The, the media hated it. The markets hated it. Politicians <coughs> hated it. The Fed was just the whipping boy for everybody. So... 
Having made that mistake once, you can't make the same mistake in the same direction again in the same cycle. So you're going to err on the other side. But again, I come back to this point. They've raised rates 500 basis points in 15 months. It's been super aggressive. And actually, Jay Powell said at the last press conference, we're tight. Real rates now are, are tight. And you just got to wait for that to work its way through. Everything will be so much simpler if the payroll yeah. numbers were behaving. But they're the, they're the outliers. But they're the ones that the markets and the Fed put the most emphasis on. We're going to say goodbye to Ian Shepherdson of Pantheon Macroeconomics. I'm going to put the surveillance cork in my mouth. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It starts right now. From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Monday, June 12th. Coming up today. Political lines are drawn as Donald Trump faces the first ever federal charges against a former president. The Fed decision and a pair of inflation reports highlight a busy week for the economy. Goldman Sachs says this equity rally has room to run. And UBS completes its historic acquisition of Credit Suisse. The man charged in the chokehold death of a Manhattan subway rider is talking. Plus, Ukraine's counteroffensive is official. Underway. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stashauer in sports. The Yankees lost in 10 innings to the Red Sox. The Mets lost in Pittsburgh. The Denver Nuggets could win the NBA championship tonight. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Here are the stories we're following today. The latest on Donald Trump. He is getting ready to appear in federal court in Miami tomorrow to face the first ever federal charges against a former president. Trump was defiant on the campaign trail over the weekend. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. You're watching Joe Biden. Joe, I think of it. Biden is trying to jail his leading political opponent, an opponent that's beating him by a lot in the polls. Former President Trump spoke at the Republican State Convention in Georgia, where he remains under investigation over efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And Nathan, in the face of the indictment, Donald Trump is still finding support. It looks like his base is holding strong. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has that part of the story. A couple of polls are out now. A CBS News poll says three quarters of likely Republican primary voters view the accusations as politically motivated. And within the party, an ABC poll says his lead over Ron DeSantis increasing at least 10 points from April to after the indictment, now 30-plus point lead within the party. Meanwhile, there's concern about the potential of large crowds and possible violence in Miami tomorrow when Trump surrenders to authorities. Trump has addressed supporters with, See you in Miami Tuesday. In San Francisco, I'm Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Daybreak. 
All right, Ed, thanks. So the political lines are being drawn as the former president awaits his day in court. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is standing by the former president. Most Republicans believe we live in a country where Hillary Clinton did very similar things and nothing happened to her. President Trump will have his day in court, but espionage charges are absolutely ridiculous. Whether you like Trump or not, he did not commit espionage. Senator Graham was on ABC's This Week, but Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, tells Fox News Sunday there wouldn't be any charges if the former president had handed the documents over. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has. He had no right to retain them in a way at Mar-a-Lago that anyone who really cares about national security, their stomach would churn. And Republican New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu tells CBS's Face the Nation this will inevitably affect the presidential race. He could win the nomination, but cannot, mathematically cannot, win in November of 24, which is why the Republican Party uh, needs to look to another candidate, and they've got a lot of great options before him. Governor Sununu thinks former President Trump will likely be found guilty on at least one of the 37 charges he faces. And politics will play big this week, but it's also a busy few days for the markets. We get a policy decision from the Fed, plus a slew of economic data. Here with more is Bloomberg's Doug Krisner. Markets are expecting the Fed to pause its tightening cycle and signal it's prepared to tighten in July. Here's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Mohamed El-Aryan. The press conference is going to be absolutely the most interesting element. How they describe that the skip which the market expects, is going to be critical. Now, if they don't get favorable inflation numbers, they're in a really hard situation because they will have to surprise the market. Before the Fed decision, markets will get two readings on U.S. inflation, CPI on Tuesday, PPI on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, U.S. retail sales. Friday brings consumer sentiment data from the University of Michigan. In New York, I'm Doug Krisner, Bloomberg Daybreak. Thanks, Doug. And against that economic backdrop, we're getting a bullish call on stocks from Goldman Sachs this morning. We get that story from Bloomberg's John Tucker. John. And Nathan with the S&P 500 now 20 percent above its October low. Goldman strategists are comfortable raising their year-end target. They say the index will end 2023 at 4,500, and that would be a 4.7% increase from Friday's close. They say while market breadth has been a worry, this current rally will broaden out. Goldman's recession outlook is lower than consensus, while their forecast for S&P 500 earnings is higher than most on Wall Street. In New York, I'm John Tucker, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right. Thank you, John. In Europe this morning, we're learning UBS has completed its acquisition of Credit Suisse. Bloomberg's Marion Haftermeyer says the closing of that deal was announced in an open letter in local and international newspapers. This huge merger has been a huge contention here locally in, in Switzerland, and they've had to do a lot of convincing of the population that this is a good thing for Switzerland. And a lot of questions have been asked around whether this is too big for Switzerland, whether the government and the regulators will be able to handle such a giant merger and the implications for jobs, branches. I mean, it's a highly politicized thing here. So I think this was really geared towards them. Bloomberg's Marianne Haftemeyer reminds us the tie-up between UBS and Credit Suisse is the biggest in banking since the 2008 financial crisis. And Amy, there's more on today's official takeover. The Financial Times is reporting UBS will impose strict restrictions on bankers coming over from Credit Suisse. That reportedly includes a ban on taking new clients from high-risk countries. 
Staying in Europe, we're learning more about the fallout from assault and harassment allegations against Crispin Ode. He's being removed from the firm's partnership and it's naming new managers to take control of his funds. Ode's main hedge fund now will be run by co-manager Freddie Neve. According to the Financial Times, the firm is also trying to contain the fallout by discussing restrictions on investor withdrawals from its EU funds. Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. And for that, we are joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. There's late word former Italian premier Silvio Berlusconi has died. Berlusconi was admitted to a hospital in Milan late last week. Last month, he was released from a hospital for a lung infection. Silvio Berlusconi was 86. Ukraine said its forces liberated at least two villages in the east of the country. It's part of its counteroffensive against Russia. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has reiterated his support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Kim vowed to hold hands firmly with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Daniel Penny, the Marine facing manslaughter charges and the chokehold death of a homeless man on a Manhattan subway, is defending his actions. His attorneys released video statements in which Penny says he was protecting himself and other passengers from an erratic Jordan Neely. Penny says he acted because Neely was threatening passengers and it had nothing to do with race. I knew I had to act and I acted in a way that would protect the other passengers, protect myself and protect Mr. Neely. The case is now before a grand jury in Manhattan. A section of a vital highway in the Northeast Corridor has been cut off after a massive tanker truck fire erupted underneath Interstate 95 in Philadelphia, causing a part of the highway to collapse. Governor Josh Shapiro. With regards to the complete rebuild of I-95 roadway, we expect that to take some number of months. Governor Shapiro says heavy machinery is now meticulously removing tons of debris, careful not to reignite whatever fuel remains. Police say a bus carrying wedding guests rolled over on a foggy night in Australia's wine country, killing 10 people and injuring 25. New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb said the 58-year-old driver has been arrested and is being charged, but that it is still not clear what caused the crash. The cause may not be known for some time. It will require scientific examination, and that takes time. Commissioner Webb. Kimberly Akimbo won for Best New Musical at last night's Tony Awards. Victoria Clark also won for Best Leading Actress in the Musical. Meanwhile, history was made when Alex Newell and Jay Harrison Gee became the first non-binary people to win Tonys for acting. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg, Nathan. Okay, Michael, thanks. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update, brought to you by Tri-State Audi. Good morning, John Stashauer. Good morning, Nathan. First Yankees-Red Sox series of the season at the stadium. Yanks lost 3-2 on Friday, 1-3-1 Saturday. Last night, had a 2-1 lead, eighth inning to Glaber Torres' error. Led to the Sox tying the game, and Boston scored in the 10th to win 3-2. Only three Yankee hits in the lineup that clearly misses Aaron Judge. Yanks lost 4-6 of six on the homestand, and they now start the first Subway Series tomorrow night at City Field. The Mets with plenty of their own problems. Losers of eight of the last nine. Like the Yanks, they had only three hits and a 2-1 loss in Pittsburgh. The Mets have a record payroll of $340 million, and yet right now only four teams in the National League have a worse record. In 
Denver tonight, Game 5 of the NBA Finals. Nuggets lead the Heat 3-1. They did lose their last home game, but that was their first loss at home since March, and they just won twice in Miami. In Paris, Novak Djokovic won the French Open Finals. Straight sets over Kasper Ruud, so he's won 23 Grand Slams, the most ever. I've been very fortunate that, that you know, most of the, the matches and tournaments i played in the last few years, are there's history on the line, so... Uh, I like the feeling. It's a, it's a privilege. It's, it's incredible privilege to to be able to make history of the sport that I truly love and that has given me so much. Djokovic is 36, hardly slowing down. He's won six of his last eight Grand Slams. He's now won all four at least three times. What a finish to the golf in Toronto. Nick Taylor rolled in a 72-foot putt on the fourth playoff hole, longest putt he's ever made in 14 years on the tour. He's the first native Canadian to win the Canadian Open since 1954. John Stash, our Bloomberg Sports. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business app, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. Donald Trump is remaining defiant and holding on to his lead in the Republican primary race as he prepares to enter a plea tomorrow in Miami federal court to the first ever federal criminal charges against a former president of the United States over his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Ahead of that, we're joined by Bloomberg News senior editor Bill Ferries. Bill, it's good to speak with you this morning, and it has been just remarkable over the course of former President Trump's career to see him hold on to this uh, base of support within the Republican Party and over the weekend back on the campaign trail. What are you going to be watching for? as we get ready for this appearance in Miami tomorrow. Well, thanks for having me, Nathan. I think uh, on sort of a more immediate front, uh, we've already seen security getting beefed up uh, in Miami, and uh, there is some concern about whether uh, the former president's supporters and uh, whether his opponents will be gathered there uh, and in what numbers and whether uh, things will remain peaceful. Uh, people on all sides of the debate, whether they uh, are supporters or opponents, have have called for a peaceful gathering, but I think you know the January 6th uh, violence at the Capitol in Washington overhangs all of these things, uh, and so there's always a degree of unpredictability. Uh, and then I think we'll be, you know, besides besides that, I think we'll be looking for, you know, uh, how the how the former president uh, addresses the charges. He's already made it clear in his public comments over the weekend that he thinks uh, that he says he's innocent, that uh, he's called it. He's called the charge as a travesty of justice. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt about how he'll plead, but I think uh, there'll be a lot of interest in whether he uh, he speaks to uh, his supporters or or uh, the press on his way in or out of the courthouse, and uh, and then sort of what the timeline becomes uh, as this case uh, moves forward in the coming months, which is exactly when the president is expected to be or the former president is expected to be ramping up his campaign for 2024. The remarkable thing about this as well, Bill, is that we have a precedent for how the president could act tomorrow because we've had the appearance in court just a couple of months ago in the hush money case in Manhattan and uh, some of the protest outside there as well. Does that inform what we could see this week? It's, you know, uh, I, I think it does. I think um, it, I think there's a big question uh, about the the size of the support though i think when he's uh that previous case you mentioned up in new york 
was a little more hostile territory for the president. Uh, South Florida is a little uh, typically friendlier territory for him and, uh, and uh, you know, a, a place a lot of his supporters already live or will easily get to. So um, I think he, uh, you know, he's more on his home turf and, and may perhaps feel emboldened to, to talk a little bit more and to, to share more of his thoughts about where this is headed. Um, you know, it's just uh, just happening all a little bit south of the Mar-a-Lago resort uh, where uh, these documents that he's charged with mishandling and keeping from investigators uh, were all stored. How do you see this affecting the presidential race going forward, given that there's a possibility that we might not see a trial wrap up potentially until after the presidential race is over? Yeah, we've we've never seen anything like this in U.S. politics before. Uh, the first federal charges against a former president, but uh, much less, you know, someone who's actively running for president again. Uh, how it, you know, there's there's always two elections in any presidential race. There's the 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 primary race, and then there's the the general election. So, in the primary race, the president is still in a commanding position. Uh, he has, you know, somewhere over uh, a third of Republican primary voters, uh, or a, a gap of uh, more than about 30 percent over his nearest opponents, um, and that that kind of support seems to be holding uh, from the polls we've seen, the, the quick polls over the weekend. Uh, a large number of Republicans believe uh, or are concerned that these charges are politically motivated. Um, even, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about something like almost 60 percent of Republicans see it that way. Those are, you know, those are the voters that Trump has to uh, be thinking about heading into a primary. Uh, and if he can sort of keep them on his side, he very well could be in the position of of winning primaries, uh, facing charges and um, and being a leading candidate for president in 2024. It's it's not it's a scenario I don't think uh, anyone would have foretold. Uh, just even a year or two ago. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern each morning. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.